You may wish to adjust the dial you're currently tuned into. The wrong station. Midnight Climax, call it 1969. The tension electric, slipping through dark alleys on a damp evening, sky like etherized lips, dim spots of yellow light rolling from the fixtures half glimpsed at the alley's end. A secret door, Porphyria Haas, hurrying alone in a miniskirt and long shearling coat and cloud of half-collected thoughts, standing anxious at the door waiting for it to open wondering if the location had changed again. Then a click, Dr. Berenson pulling her through, his soft fingers tight on the naked skin of her wrist. Down to the basement, the chair, wad of cash on the console by the stairwell, and his hands eager, almost trembling as he fixed the buckles round her wrists and ankles, the cold gel sealing electrodes to her head, beneath the hair, where they'll leave sticky clumps like ejaculate by morning. Are you ready, Miss Haas? She takes a moment to control her shorting breath. She's as excited as he is, though they're but allies of convenience working different angles on cross-cut causes. Let's go, she says. Let's do this. Black Sight, call it 20-05. He thought one form of agency, the choice to die, remained to him. That was until he tried to exercise it. Three days he refused the use of food. This was terrible and took great strength of will, but for once in the last three years of his imprisonment, it was a pain with some purpose. Then one of the guards, the future governor of Arkansas, entered his cell with three other men, and they dragged him to a place he'd never been before, a white void enrobing a great throne adorned with leather straps the electric chair. For a moment, he allowed himself to hope he was being granted the mercy of death. Then they strapped him down and forced a metal bit between his teeth, its hard edges grinding against enamel. His gums bled. Then the future governor produced a motor and pump screwed onto a wooden board, placed this apparatus down on a side table, two five-sixteenths inner-diameter polyvinyl hoses running out of the pump, one of them ending in a smooth steel bit. The hose had not been cleaned. Cloudy residuum on the outside, pinkish in hue. One of the guards produced a bottle of KY brand personal lubricant and began to slicken the hose and metal bit, working in lube between his forefingers and the rough ball of his thumb. Another left the room and returned with a six-pack of Ensure Protein Shake, strawberry flavor, 
which he began to empty out, one by one, into an unwashed, collapsible bucket of grimy yellow rubber. Hassan could already smell the plasticky fetor of the lubricant, the childish, chemical red of the broth. Shortly after, they began the feeding. He slipped through for the first time. We'll meet again, and call it 1958. Shattered highway under a white sun, and desert on all sides with rusted hunks of automotive standing in her way until she skipped aside from them, glancing in at the blasted skeletons, still laughing at the feeling of the glass shards that had once buried themselves amidst the ribs. A couple of the silent locals wandered with her now, a beefcake with the front of his swimming trunk seared off, only their scorched banner still flapping around his perfect buttocks, leaving raw, exposed muscle and seeping interstices. Eyes staring lidless from their sockets, perfect teeth ashine behind no lips. He seemed to be standing about an inch above the actual ground. And with him, a nurse. Not the sexy kind, but a sort of white absence flickering in and out against the summer sky. The boxy suggestion of a set of scrubs. The short and roundish suggestion of a figure. Perhaps some auntie from the Philippines who hadn't seen the family she sent money to in over sixteen years. Porphyria didn't mind their presence. She liked them more than Dr. Berenson. They make a solitude and call it peace. Didn't have to do anything here. Hassan could just be. Breathing the faint and acrid dust of vaporized cities, tasting the ruined atoms of the people who'd done all this to him, and those who'd suffered in isolated solidarity. A distant sound. He squinted against the radiant sky and stood. Something heavy moving low across the horizon. Final form. His name, when worth remembering, was Richard Duke, decorated serviceman. He was certainly dead, he reasoned. So what could any of this matter? Decorated serviceman. So was this heaven? He prowled across low skies, and his form was huge and almighty. From time to time he saw survivors, and wakened up his heavy guns, those organs hanging fruit-like from his lower body, pendulous and rife with life's nearest alternative. Then, the low ecstasy of dust clouds blooming at the horizon, his fulfillment of pleasure at the erasure of small figures, and then the glimpse through his great and staring lidless baby blues as his heavy body hurtled overhead, his whirling wings bestirring up the dust to show the blossomed bodies, the scattered spores of life's nearest alternate. Tender Mercies Hassan came to in the darkness, and almost cried because it was such relief to endless light. They liked to cycle him between the two, the white torture and the black, each intended to erase him in sensory deprive, but each providing a few hours of relief upon the change. Maybe he was supposed to mediate upon his crimes, but of course, he hadn't committed any, save for those normal small abuses of the human heart. He often felt guilty either way. 
critical theory. She came home to her second-floor apartment, its cutting edge of trendy orange-browns, its heavy shag upon the floor, radio afloat as she ground its dial to the on position, some song she thought might be the Rolling Stones. The funny thing was, none of it was real, all translucent to the touch. They'd come and ransacked the place again during her session, found and tore up her zines, her second-hand copies of Althusser and Marx, purchased with the program's own money from backroom bookstores in behind the lanes, but never even read. They were on to her, of course, but what they didn't realize yet was, she was on to them. She stood in the middle of her empty living room, laughing from her belly. Away and down the street, two men with headphones glanced at one another in the back crater of a panel van. Beloved, Dr. Soren Berenson stroked her wrist as she trembled, drooling in her sleep. It was a liberty, of course, but nothing like what some of the other doctors in the program liked to take and justify by claiming it was part of the research. Yet he was a more sensitive soul, he believed, and always told anyone who'd listen. He stroked her wrist, just twice, in case he let himself get carried away, and asked her, Where are you now? And why can't I be with you? Infrastructure They first crossed paths on an abandoned airbase, the roads and runways white cacigraphy against the recrudescent greens, scattered shards of metal strewing all about, some of them burning too hot to come within a meter of, even though they seemed quite cool to look at. Radiation, probably, though he only had tenth grade science. He came across her at the sweaty, rusted flank of one of those prefab half-cylinder buildings made of corrugated metal, the kind they used in World War II. Quonset huts, he thought they were called. This one seemed to subtly breathe. He found her attractive to look at, but of course it had been over three years since he'd ever seen a woman, over fifteen months since he'd even thought of one. Hey, you, she shouted. He wandered over, hands inside his pockets, trying not to blush. These are my friends, she said, gesturing to no one. Beefcake and the nurse. Don't be intimidated, though, she added in a whisper. Beef and I are strictly friends. Hassan didn't know what she was talking about, but it was nice just to hear a friendly voice. What? What are you doing? His voice was rusty. Don't you know this yet? She asked. You must be new here. Look. From a large duffel bag about her ankle, she produced a corded hammer drill and carbide hole saw bit. A small gas generator was already lugged up beside her, where the beefcake was allegedly standing. She plugged it in, the drill, and held it by the pistol grip and crossbar, like a grease gun in the trenches ninety years ago. It looked incongruous, a little funny juxtaposed with her tall and faintly Mansonera sort of look, with the wide-legged pants and center-parted yellow hair. Then she powered up the drill and slowly pressed into the Quonset's side. The trick with steel, she shouted over the mechanism's whine, is to take it low and slow and let the bit do the work for you. After a moment, the bit and little steel curls began to flow along its grooves like butter. At the same time, a low moan of pain came up from the Quonset, 
and a stream of heavy dark ichor whelmed round the carbide teeth to pour down along the corrugated channels of the hut. Then the last resistance gave, and the whole drilling bit plunged deep into the building's flesh. She drew it back, ichor streaming down her wrists, and a plug of dense red meat was stuck inside the hole saw. Come on, she said, beckoning him. She bent her faintly pointed chin to the Quonset's bloody hole and sucked. Come on, she said again. It's good to drink. After they slurped their fill, she led him to the roof of a crumbling air traffic tower to show him the blasted endlessness of the place they discovered. Welcome to America. A helicopter muttered low in the distance, the sound of its rotors echoing against the hard blue sky and empty hills. Epistemology. An interrogator came, which was always funny. An earnest, considerate man who said he came from a different agency. We need to know something, he said. It's a matter of life and death. Hassan said nothing. The interrogator produced a manila envelope and spread its glossy contents wide across the desk. We need to know everything you can tell us about this man. Hassan looked at the pictures for a while. I don't know him. Don't you know him? I don't even know myself anymore. Tristero. She went home with her semi-regular guy and put on a bit of a performance, knowing they were listened to. Afterward, lying in his arms, she heard him breathe as if to speak, but then hesitate a couple times. I'm worried about you. He said at last. I've never been better, she said. I'm on to something. But you don't seem like yourself these days. You're distant. That's because I'm on my way beyond. She gave him lysergic acid and they made love again. And then she asked him questions for the hidden microphones. Afterward, Dr. Berenson listened to the recordings of their lovemaking several times his red-rimmed eyes just barely dry by force of will, his pallid fist clenched up into a ball. Afterward, he took off the cans and put them aside, walked to meet his lab tech in the other room. We need to raise Miss Haas's dose. Quench. He hadn't thought he'd want to eat or drink, because somewhere his stomach was still bloated with pink fluid and his throat and nostrils burning from sugary pink vomit. But after they walked together long enough, he found the heat and radiated dust would parch him, and he'd long for something, anything to drink. The Quonset blood was warm and black-strap bittersweet, but he didn't like the way the huts would groan and tremble as Porphyria drilled, and they both drank. Don't you think it's wrong? He asked her, if they can feel it. They're their buildings, Hassan. She always pronounced it Hassan, not Hassan. Remember all they've done to us? He wanted to challenge her on this. But then came the sound on the horizon of joyful moaning, rotor blades, and then the dance of heavy guns. Regret. Oh my God, oh my God, 
Berenson fruitlessly pawed at her face, the back of her head as she spasmed, pouring fluid at the mouth. Save her, save her, save her. His tech ignored the panic, working fast with needles and cathartics. A tense few minutes. Then the last of the fluid was out, and her heart monitor's hysteric shriek warbled down to a steady ping. Something strange. Berenson leaned forward across his patient, scenting some strange fragrance on her acrid breath. Then he tapped her cheek, leaving a finger mark in the thick pink tide which had bubbled from between her teeth. He sniffed it. Strawberry, he said. Remorse. An unfamiliar face when he awoke. Not the heavy-featured governor of Arkansas. Not the useless and dignified mug of the interrogator. A face with a wide blue mouth. Oh, no, he thought, groggily. A medical mask. What happened? You entered cardiac arrest during a feeding event. The tech was an Asian man. First non-white face Hassan had seen since they brought him here. You should eat what they bring you, the tech told him. These force feedings are very bad for you. Tell them that. They wouldn't have to do it if you ate. I would eat if they stopped torturing me. The tech looked at him for a long time. What did you do to end up in here? The answer, self-evident, Austin would have thought. Nothing. But even behind that mask, he could tell the tech didn't believe him. After a moment, the inevitable question... Are you a terrorist? No right answer once you've been asked a question like that. Hassan shut his eyes and leaned back, laughing a little even though it made his chest hurt. Yes. Aporia. She brought him to her apartment. Berenson. First time he'd seen inside it, except for the cameras the old man trembling a little to be there in the flesh. He disgusted her. Who is he? she asked. He was immediately on guard. Who is who? I think you know. Whoever wound up in there before me. Berenson genuinely had no clue what she was talking about. There was no there so far as he knew. She sighed, pinched the bridge of her nose with hard white fingertips, and poured herself a double whiskey in a rocks glass. Didn't offer him anything. Tell me about the man you were working on before me. The military guy. Berenson actually flinched. She could see hairs rising on the back of his gray-haired neck in real time. How did you know about him? Just tell me. It's important. It matters a lot. Her lips left red asymptotes on the rim of the glass. He glanced up nervously to where he knew the cameras were, even though he'd turned them off. Always a chance someone else had turned them back on. Soren, she insisted. She'd let a smoky edge trickle into her voice. It's me. He let out a shaky sigh, perched himself on a high-top stool beside her at the kitchen island, close to her as he dared. Dick Duke, he told her. First Airborne Battalion, 8th Cavalry. Grew up in the Midwest, stint in juvenile detention, joined the military after finishing high school. Was involved in an off-the-books mass killing during Operation Masher, subsequently captured and tortured by the North Vietnamese. 
fell into heroin addiction after the war. That's how he wound up in the program. What happened to him? The answer is self-evident, Berenson would have thought. He died. Porphyria finished her glass, flicked it away across the countertop. It almost fell off the far corner, coming to a perilous stop half-resting in thin air. That's interesting, she said. Now, what about the other one? Other what? Other who? The Arab guy, Hassan. But Dr. Berenson had no idea what she was talking about. Crash. Their bodies were full of red craters. She could see daylight through him. He could see night through her. Why didn't we die? We did, she said. Then how? She silenced him by drawing near, closing his mouth with a kiss. Her body as much of a red ruin as his, but that kiss the first time he had been touched other than as an act of cruelty and so much longer than he could remember. He surrendered to her, and she pushed him down to the parched soil, the dead grass, and they made love. All the while, two figures, the burnt front of a silent man and the vague white outline of a nurse, looked down upon them. He was beginning to see them now. When the lovers lay spent together in the thin shade of a dry tree, her wounds were fully closed. His, on the other hand, still wept. He hadn't learned how to close them, hadn't even had the insight that they could be closed. All the world seemed random to him, but she was beginning to see that this place had a kind of order. Where are we? How is this possible? He asked, touching through a hole in her white dress to caress the new-grown skin beneath. Harder, smoother, whiter than the rest of her, than any skin he'd ever felt before. Why are you asking now? You were content to sit and breathe in the sunlight before. Well, that was before someone came and blew my body apart. Now I can't stop wondering. His name is Richard Duke, she told him. The gunship. He's one of them. He was here before us. Hassan looked at her in surprise. How do you know that? She only gave him a non-answer. He died outside. A pause, then. You understand the implication? But before he could ask her to explain, Hassan woke in the white throne, coughing with the taste of strawberries and stomach acid in his throat. Simple Pleasures he had built an enormous nest for himself in the crater of a hospital, and lined it with soft corpses so irradiated that they would not rot. His shits, commensurate with his size, weighed about sixty kilograms, and he let them out frequently inside his nest, being not bothered especially by things like hygiene anymore, and being comforted by their smell and warmth. Comfort was a strangely rare thing in his afterlife, and he was beginning to wonder if this was heaven after all. Just this morning, he had come upon a pair of children walking down the abandoned highway, and had fired on them until they were nothing but bloody rags. Not for the first time, though, he had found the experience a little disappointing. During his days in the jungle, the targets had run, and sometimes fired back. He and his buddies had made a game out of the killing, 
But here, there was nobody to track his score against. And worst of all, the targets just stood there and waited to die. He was in danger of becoming bored. With a grumble, he nestled himself into the warmth of his lair and decided that, next time, he would kill his victims slowly, to see if he could get a better reaction. Commitment. He still wasn't eating, less now as an act of resistance than because he wanted to see her, and the feedings were his only way through. He would wake, cradled in her arms in that other America, with his body torn to shreds and his cheek wet with her tears. Why aren't you trying? She would ask him. She meant trying to heal the way she was, with each wound becoming flawless and unbreakable ceramic. Maybe I don't want to heal. Tell me about what they did to you, Hassan. And when he told her about the midnight raid, about his father and brother summarily shot against the back wall of their house, she told him about her sister, who'd gone through the same program as her and come out the other side unable to leave the house, unable to do anything but draw circles on the wallpaper. But we're going to get them for what they did to us, Hassan. They have no idea where they've sent us, no idea what we're capable of. He looked up at her then, her eyes the same blue as the irradiated sky, and knew she didn't love him as a woman loves a man, but as a martyr loves their death. Diplonoia. Weeks since she'd last laid in his arms, and her semi-regular guy brought flowers when he came over, but he found she was not in the mood for love. The inside of her bathroom was all covered in layers of insulating foam and aluminum foil, all held together by bands of black PVC tape. She was sitting cross-legged on the crackling floor, frantically drawing with permanent marker. Oh. He dropped his flowers at the sight of her. Come in! Out of view of the cameras! She snapped. Close the door. Cameras? She waved her hand at him. Cameras! They've been watching me for months. Berenson and the men he's working for. I've been happy to go along with it till now, but this is important. He perched on the edge of the tub, feeling a flood of misery at his heart. What's so important, V? He'd known her for many years. The torch he carried was guttering its last. I need something important. Something imbued. You understand me? You're high, V. She only laughed. This is the closest to Earth I get these days. I told you, I'm going beyond. At that moment, he finally made a decision that broke his heart. He stood. I should go. Go? She glanced back at him. I thought you'd want to stay. Thought you'd want to be with me. Not like this, Fee. For a moment, her mania ebbed. You think I'm crazy. But that's just because you don't have the same facts as me. You haven't seen what I've seen. Goodbye, Fee. He left the bathroom door open behind him as he left, despite her shouting at him to close it. Through that small crack and the blurry lens of his camera, Dr. Berenson caught a glimpse of what she was drawing. Something like an angel. Something like a spear. Grace. Not the interrogator this time, though the same room, 
and a man who looked enough like him, from the flat gray hair to the dull, dark blue suit, as to be interchangeable. The man introduced himself to Hassan as his lawyer. At this, Hassan hung his head and began to laugh, with tears mingled in. You must be mistaken. I'm supposed to die in here. After that meeting, he started to eat again. But from time to time, the future governor of Arkansas still saw fit to force-feed him. Perfect concussion. Sometimes Soren wasn't sure who was in charge anymore. Her or him. Who was the subject and who was the researcher. This time, he turned off the cameras and went to her apartment uninvited. But when she opened the door, it was clear that he was expected. She was wearing a dress he had never seen before, white and covered in roses like bloody bullet wounds. Dr. Berenson, why don't you come in for a drink? He'd already had one or two for the courage, and now gladly accepted the third. How do I know you haven't spiked it? He asked, mostly for the sake of form. I have, she said. Spiked mine as well. A giggle. She raised her glass in salute, then drained it, her red lips on the glass. He thirstily followed suit, loosened his tie, half fell back onto the living room futon as she poured him another. Half an hour's idle small talk, halting flirtation from him, vague flirtation from her. He wasn't sure if she wanted him or hated him with every fiber of her being. Strange music playing on the radio. Porphyria, I... She put a cool finger to his lips. I know, Soren, she told him. But all the times I've watched you with... With other men, he insisted. And then after, the way you interrogated them, I just... You're just so much more than I thought you were. I've fallen in love with you, Porphyria. She knelt on the floor in front of him. Love. He closed his eyes. A faint television static was filling the apartment. I, I know how it sounds. I just... She did something which shut him up. Then, quite unexpectedly, stood. Wait here one minute. She stood and went to the bedroom, then returned only a moment later, though the hands on the living room clock had bled around to the far side by the time she did. Her white dress was hanging open, revealing smooth white patches of flesh spotting her skin like... oh, like ceramic, maybe. Though he didn't know if they were real, because, by now, slow patterns were drifting across them like shadows of geometric clouds over a wind-blown field. She was carrying some sort of heavy-handled box in both her hands, like a large lunch pail or something you'd use to transport power tools. Come this way, Soren. Very excited, he accepted the cool hand she extended him, and allowed her to draw him into the washroom, where she set down the box in one corner. Come on. She drew him into the shower and removed all his clothes, his soft and excited body running with reflected light from the foil walls. What are we doing? Trust me, Soren. She turned on the shower, hot water running over their bodies. He had never seen anything like her naked body, and didn't resist as she gently turned him around and pushed him against the cool tiles. 
Cool tiles on one side, warm water on the other. Stay there one moment. Feel it. He shut his eyes, felt the cool tile running down his front, the warm water solid at his back. She was behind him, somewhere, fumbling with the catches on that heavy plastic box, a black power cord. Then he heard her footsteps climbing back into the shower with him, felt her body block the flow of water. She rested something heavy and cold and faintly sharp against his back, just to the left of his spine. He giggled. What is that? She told him. It's a circular saw. The right tool for the job. Hassan wandered a long time before he found her. The beefcake and nurse were no help at all. It seemed they decided to start following him instead, now that he could see them. She was inside a Quonset hut this time. Not one of the ones they'd fed off together, but he could see daylight shining through round holes in the corrugated steel. He knew she'd probably been coming here longer than him. Maybe she'd fed off this one before. Or maybe it was Richard Duke or someone else before him, or someone else before him. Porphyria had a face shield down and was using an acetylene torch to weld something. When he got close enough, he could see that it was a still bloody human spine, some kind of liquid chrome she was using to stiffen up its vertebra. Where did you get that? he asked, as she extinguished the torch and raised the shield. Her face was looking whiter now, smoother, cleaner than he remembered. It wasn't the question he would have asked in normal life if he'd come across someone wielding a human spine, but he had seen a helicopter made of flesh. I got it somewhere important, she said. That's all that matters. It's something potent, something imbued. It has to be. For what? She answered his question in a roundabout way. This place is ours, Hassan. If they find out about it, they'll try and make it theirs. I'm taking it first. But he shook his head. My place is home. I'm getting out. Out? What do you mean, out? I mean, out. Out, out. I I have a lawyer now. There's been a case. The government lost. Now they need to charge people like me if they want to keep us. She glanced up at him. So you're leaving me? We know each other's names, Porphyria. We can find each other out there. But she shook her head, looking stricken. Shut the mask. There is no more out there for me. He did not see her after that. Perfect consummation. He prowled across low skies, and his form was huge and almighty. Few survivors left by now for him to kill and kill again. But as he came down low across the cylinder-strewed wreckage of the airfield, he saw someone standing on the roof of a Quonset hut, waving at him. A young woman, nearly nude. He unlimbered the guns, but... The sight of her awakened some half-forgotten instinct that suddenly cried to be filled, and so instead of firing, he unlimbered the heavy member in between his wheels and fanned his wings, 
whipping up a dust cloud as he settled down upon the Quonset roof, gripping it with clawed fingers, and staring at her with bloodshot baby blues each the size of a full inflated beach ball. She put her hands up and took a half step back from him. He leered at her, the teeth half real, half painted on his chassis, drawing back across their steel gums. Then she crouched, reached down, and rose with something in her hand. A spear, or something like a spear. But in the half-second before it buried itself in his skull, he had enough time to notice it had been made from a spine, its spear point a human sacrum. He had enough time to laugh inwardly at the thought that a spear could hurt him. Cadillac. Then, abruptly, Hassan was a free man. A bag over his head, a plane ride he thought for sure was rendition to some place the lawyers would never find him. Then, suddenly, the spring sunshine on his face as they brought him down on the tarmac of a country he recognized. Forty minutes later, a chauffeured black vehicle left him downtown with nothing. Not even a phone call. If only this could have been avoided. She was still alive when they reached her apartment, sitting naked in the living room, her pupils dilated to the size of dinner plates, a gory artifact at rest across her lap. Jesus Christ. The technician ran to the sink and threw up. His new supervisor, though, some Yankee blue blood in his seventies, took the whole sight in stride stalked unconcerned to the bathroom and glanced inside at Dr. Berenson lying face down in the tub, back body splayed apart like wings. "'You begin to see now, son,' he said to the technician. "'Just what it is we're up against.' Glanced up at the hidden cameras, now operational again. "'Close them down,' he commanded. "'Destroy the tapes.' "'It goes without saying. Never mention this again.' The young man shuddered again, then glanced over his shoulder with staring eyes. The blue blood met this stare evenly. I need not say, he clarified, that lives depend on this confidence. Your own and others. A quiet life. Hassan never went through again. Never had cause to. A normal life. A quiet life. Yearly check-ins with intelligence to make sure he wasn't falling in with a bad crowd. To make sure there were no hard feelings over that little 42-month misunderstanding all those years ago. A normal life. Family events and elections. The governor of Arkansas bringing down the house at CPAC. Assured the nomination, so they said. And in all those years, he... Never learned what happened to her. Never found any social media footprint or received any Google alert. Once, a few years after his release, he even hired a private investigator. All they dragged up was a newspaper clipping from the 60s. A local nothing story with a quote from a woman whose name happened to be the same as hers. Her mother, perhaps. Blowback. 
Dark alleys on a damp evening. Sky like etherized lips. Dim spots of yellow light rolling from the fixtures half glimpsed at the alley's end. A secret door. The old blue blood slowly smoking a cigarette. It was a shame, really, that the program hadn't produced its intended results. Berenson had been wet, of course, but he was far from the only doctor on the project, and the research had seemed promising at first. Well, at least they could still use it for interrogations. He snuffed out the cigarette under the sole of his handmade shoe. Spilt milk. Oh, well. The firm had plenty of other irons in the fire. To break temple walls. Call it 2042. An old man lying lonely in his bed, dreaming the bad old dreams of his white cell, his throne and strawberry-flavored ambrosia. And then he woke to a sound on his ceiling like a power drill, like the kind you'd use to tap a Quonset hut. Strange to hear, since his small apartment was on the topmost floor. The sound died, and then a repeated thudding, 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 trying to get through. Then a spear point broke the ceiling, and wild white light bled through a kind of monstrous angel reaching for him, porcelain and strange. Not trying to pull him back into her world, but asking him to pull her into his. The Wrong Station is made possible with the generous support of our listeners on Patreon. Visit today at patreon.com slash the wrong station. You can also support us by leaving a rating and review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever it is you tune into the show. This week's episode, The Kinds of Threats We're Forced to Deal With, was written by Alexander Saxton and performed by Anthony Botello. Thank you to Montana, Reese, Kyle Sullivan Roop, Nicholas Bates, Timothy Franklin, Greg Ben, Sean Maciel, Eric Sutton, and Juliana Fajardini for helping us keep the lights... Well, off. The Wrong Station is co-produced by Alexander Saxton, Anthony Botello, and Jacob Duarte Spiel, with music composed and performed by Alain Citron, and arranged for the viola and performed by Viola Schmidt. You can follow The Wrong Station on social media, at The Wrong Station, and email us at therongstation at gmail.com. And until next time, thank you for listening. <laughs>